Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps under what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 115 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. Today is an interesting day on a multitude of levels, and all of the things going on in my life right now sort of connect, which is something I'm realizing more and more as I age, that everything in life has some sort of connection to something else. So it's early November, and November is a difficult month for me, always has been. I see in it darkness and despair. I see the beginning of winter. I see the end of summer and the time of life that makes me feel alive and hopeful. And I'm better with it. I think as I go along, I'm better with it. I've had, I've had some pretty wonderful Novembers. But this November has not been disappointing in regard to its despair. A couple of days ago, I found out that Rusty Coffrin died. Rusty Coffrin and I coached track and field and cross country together at Concord High for several years. We also officiated for the New Hampshire Indoor Track League together for several years. He had three children whom I still know. I had the most interaction with his son, Timmy, and his daughter, Nikki. His oldest son, Brendan, I, of course, knew Brendan, and Brendan ran while I was coaching. But I had, I had closer interactions with his other two kids. And I had a wonderful friendship with his wife, Cheryl, who was also gone. Rusty's death wasn't unexpected. He actually was diagnosed with brain cancer in 2006, I believe, retired from teaching way back then, 2007, and has spent his later years in various stages of health and unhealth. He has had recurring brain tumors two or three times from his first diagnosis to his death. So his, his death was not unexpected at all, but it didn't take away from it being sad because what happens when someone dies is you have a collection of people, which can be a wonderful thing, who come together and talk about all the memories. And so you get carried down sort of a carried down memory lane, so to speak with memories that you'd forgotten existed, experiences that others had, common stories, jokes. Rusty's wake was no different. I only spent a few minutes there, maybe 20 minutes. I spent most of it talking to Nikki, his daughter. Nikki is a mother now. She has a three-year-old and 18-month-old, God bless her, a little boy and a little girl. And she is, of course, going through all the things she goes through in early motherhood. And she's doing it now without her mother. And this is not something that she would have thought a possibility at all a year ago. Cheryl was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died within four weeks. Rusty's been sick for, you know, 20 years. So it was just a different, it was just a different experience, these two deaths. But the upshot is neither of her parents are here anymore. And we got talking at the wake about which kind of death is worse, a death that you have time to prepare for and you know is coming, or one that takes you by surprise and, you know, cuts you out at the knees. And we decided that neither, neither was very good and that really neither one was better than the other because what you got with time to prepare was a long memory of the last months or years of that person's life. Everything was around the illness and the impending death. So I think of Gene Connolly who died of ALS and I thought about this a lot as well. His family had time to prepare. When he was still healthy and well, they could talk about it. But the, the upshot of that is 
his last three or four years on the planet were absorbed in ALS. It wasn't just getting up and living. This was hanging over the heads of his family all the time. And when he died, he was gone. Just like if he had walked out the door and had a heart attack, right? You know, you're alive and then you're dead. Nikki had both. She got to experience the suddenness of diagnosis to death being just a matter of weeks with her mom. And then she got years and years and years of wondering, is daddy going to die? Is dad going to die? Is dad going to die? And when we were talking at the wake, it really became evident that neither one was any better for her. They were just different. One was sudden and quick. One was painful and long. Both of them culminate in the same outcome, the lack of that parent in the physical form here on earth. That's just sort of been hovering in my mind a little bit. And the other thing that's come to mind, and I wrote a blog about it this week. I, I wrote a blog about Rusty's death. So this week right now, it's November 4th. Rusty's wake was November 1st. In the blog, I talk about the fact that as I get older, more and more people that I know are dying. And I think, of course, that's just the passage of time. And you, you meet a lot more people as you age. You meet people older. You meet people younger. But in the last two weeks, I've had a school classmate die, courtside and sticker. I've had a former student at Walker School, Annika Ritsuna. I just found out about that today. She couldn't, she would have been in her 30s. I had Rusty, who was 65, not young, but not old. Linda May. Linda May was a music teacher at Concord High, Runlet, and Walker. I knew her mostly when she taught at Walker. And after school, sometimes I played the violin then, and we would meet, and she would play the penny whistle, and I would play the violin. It was wonderful. It was just little fun times to hang together with somebody who was a little different. Linda has been a big support for me. So I'm sitting here now going over the fact that every other day or so, I'm finding out news that someone has passed away. And of course, it brings up a lot of emotions. So it brings up a couple of things. And where I went in my blog post was Eric Erickson. And he is a child psychologist. And he wrote a book on the stages of development. And anyone that's majored in education or majored in psychology would know all about Eric Erickson because it, he's one of the more well-known experts on children and how, we, how they develop. His theories on child development have stages where you're a certain age, and every stage has a conflict, two sides that you're sort of battling in your development. So stage one is birth to 18 months, and that battle is trust versus mistrust. And so think about it. A baby that's nurtured when they're sad, a baby that has their cries and coos and smiles responded to will develop trust because he's realizing, he or she is realizing that the other beings in their lives are corresponding and responding to him or her. So when babies are neglected, when they are left to cry, when they are ignored or treated poorly, they develop mistrust. So a lot of these are really, really dependent upon the environment of the baby. Stage two is autonomy versus shame. So here's a thing where, and Jack is going through this right now. Oh my gosh. And this is toddler from 18 months to three. So he's right smack in it. Jack tries everything. He's curious and he doesn't know the difference between something that's okay to do. For example, jumping off the bottom step onto the grass or something that's not okay. Jumping off the top step of the stairway onto the pavement, right? Two very similar things, jumping off stairs. He loves to jump. He doesn't know. He also doesn't know really right from wrong in any manner. So again, he's a bit dependent upon his surroundings, me, Kenny, Gracie, to let him know what's okay and what isn't and why, right? So he's developing a sense of self. Who am I? What do I enjoy? What is okay for me to do? We were playing outside when we had the backhoe in our yard. I might've told this story. 
And he loved it. He climbed on it for about an hour. And Kenny just stood there with him and drank his coffee. And Jack climbed and climbed. And I went out and called him Tractor Boy. And he says, no, Mommy, not a tractor. Jack Diggerman. So he's the Diggerman. That was his name for himself. He has now taken to calling me Boop Man, because Boop is what he calls breastfeeding. He doesn't understand that man is gender specific to a male. It doesn't matter, right? You know, Superman, Superwoman, Superperson. But I'm Boop Man and Sissy's Dance Man, Daddy's Golf Man. But he's figured out that we can we can have labels for things that we like to do. We can create names for ourselves. So autonomy, I'm Jack, your mommy, right? And then shame. Is Jack a naughty boy? Is Jack a good boy? Is Jack making mommy angry? Is mommy getting angry because of Jack? These are things we develop in that stage. I'm getting there, trust me. <laughs> stage three is initiative versus guilt. And that's preschool, ages like three to five. So guilt is sort of how you feel when somebody tells you you're naughty or you did something wrong and you feel bad about it. Or you know something is wrong and you do it anyway and you feel bad about it. You have some shame and some guilt. All of these are natural emotions that, that can be dealt with in very positive ways. And it's our brains and our psyches sort of way of keeping us safe and helping us to make decisions that were we living in the wild would keep us alive. An initiative, of course, wanting to do something. Jack is also going through a phase where he wants to do everything. He spilled a bunch of crumbs this morning off of a plate and we're living in the living room right now. So it went on the rug. So we tried to sweep it because he wants to do it. He almost broke the TV with the handle of the broom, but that's okay. So he finally got us swept up and realized we needed the vacuum and he wanted to help. I get it. I get it. I do it but the vacuum's too big and it scares the crap out of him. So once I started the vacuum, he flew up onto the couch and just watched from behind his zero blanket, his new favorite character. So he wanted initiative, right? He felt bad that he spilled his crumbs. He wanted to help clean it up. Okay. Stage four, industry versus inferiority. So this would be ages six to 11. So elementary school years, right? So industry, what am I good at? What do I want to take part in? How do I fit into my classroom and my my scout troop or my dance class? Like, what do I do that brings me happiness? And then you have inferiority. Oh, wow. They're really smarter than me in math. Oh, her clothes are nicer. Oh, I don't tap dance as well as they do. You start to notice yourself in relation to other people. I remember Gracie coming home from kindergarten and she and Molly loved Barney. Barney was just huge back then and they liked the singing along and they liked the crafts. And Gracie came home one day and let me know that it wasn't okay to talk about Barney at school, that Barney wasn't cool. And it was our first conversation around the fact that lots of people have opinions, people like different things. And sadly, in social groups, some people's words have more power than others. It went right over her head, her head for the most part, and she was happy to just not talk about Barney at school. But you start to realize and feel that you're not as good as everyone around you if you don't fit in. Stage five... <laughs> identity versus confusion. Who am I? So when you're a middle school student, all of the hormonal changes start to happen. And while we have a lot going on in our culture right now around gender and wanting to make everything gender neutral, penis bodies and vagina bodies and the hormonal rages that go through them from ages, you know, 11 or 12 to 18 are massively, massively different. They produce different things. Adult penis bodies and adult vagina bodies do very different things in the scope of nature. During that time, you're going through identity versus confusion. So this is a time where a child that's in a family that's open, like, okay, well, so how are you feeling? Well, let's think about why you might be feeling that way versus you can't feel that way because, or that's a bad way to feel. 
this is a time where a lot of information is coming in into our brains and we're, we're processing it very quickly. Prefrontal cortex isn't developed. So a lot of decisions during these years are impulsive and they're made off of emotion and anger and hormonal status and not off of logic and safety and that sort of thing. After that, 18 to 40. So now we're talking really your whole adult life where you're likely getting married and having kids is intimacy versus isolation. And these are called young adult years. Do I get married? Do I have kids? Do I create a family? Do I share my private selves with somebody? Do I have a life partner, a soulmate? Do I have a group, a new family? Do I choose a family that's different than my own? Young adult life, when I look back to my, you know, 18 to 40, you know, when I was 18 and graduating high school, I was off to BU and had no idea what or where my life would take me. And when I was 40, I gave birth to Molly. So in those 22 years, I went through alcoholic behavior in college, a sexual assault, getting sober in AA, meeting two really nice guys, one of whom 20 years later would unplug my daughter Molly from life support, meeting Kenny, getting married, having a pregnancy surprise me, losing the pregnancy a little over halfway through, getting married, having Gracie and Molly. From 18 to 40, I was two completely different people. And in that time, I battled, I struggled with intimacy. Sometimes I was better off alone. Sometimes I was better off connected to somebody. I remember in looking at my running career and thinking, boy, I've run all my personal best times when I did not have a boyfriend. <laughs> and what does that mean, right? I used to put a lot of, a, a lot of importance on that, that, that when I wasn't stressed out or just distracted by a relationship, I focused on running. Running was mental health for me. Hmm. So then after that, after the young adult years, you get into stage seven, which I'm in now, and that's called generativity versus stagnation. So generativity is the time, and this makes a lot of sense when you think of people in their 40s and 50s. They're established in their careers for the most part. They have their husband or they've had a family and they're divorced. They've gone through all of the tumult, all of the intimacy and isolation of their young adult years. And now it's like, what can I do to give back? I think I'll run for public office. I think I'll sit on a school board. I'll volunteer at the soup kitchen. This age, you start to see yourself in the world as two sort of separate entities, one within the other, as opposed to your whole life being about you. Up until about age 40, we are very ego-driven. And ego-driven driven isn't always a bad thing. Having a solid sense of self is important. But once you turn 40, I think if life is climbing up a mountain, I think when you turn 40, you're just getting above the tree line now. So you can see through the trees and realize, oh, I'm on a mountain. And pretty soon I'm going to have a much bigger view of the world than I had a mile back. And so that's where I am now. So generativity is maintaining relevance, you know, staying involved in things. And then stagnation is, all right, I'm done. I'm just going to watch TV every day and maybe I'm retired now. And so I've done my part. And again, there's no judgment here. This is our battle. What, how much do I want to do? And I actually look at Kenny and I, and there's a big part of Kenny that would really just like to get up when he wakes up, have coffee, putz about, take his time. By the time he's showered, neat and ready to go, maybe it's 11 in the morning and he putzes around for a few hours and then have a drink at four and eat dinner and have another drink and then go to bed. I think in many ways that would be an ideal life for him. I remember in our marriage years ago, so we were both, I was maybe in my forties and he was in his fifties. He really just liked the fact that you just repeated things. Like you, you set up your life and that was your life and you just lived it. We had a big fight one day. We had given up drinking. I came home and he was watching football and drinking beer. And I'm like, Kenny, we gave up drinking. And he goes, well, alcohol. I'm like Kenny, beer is alcohol. And he just didn't want to see it that way. No, beer is beer. And so I got really sad. I just, I just felt that we were not on the same page at all. And, and he said, well, I don't see why we have to give up drinking. We have a nice life. I like my life. 
I don't feel like I need to change anything. And I was like, but we're supposed to grow. Like we haven't arrived at the best we can be. We have to try to be better. I don't, I, I don't want to settle into this life. I, I don't feel good about it. And that difference in mindset has not changed at all. And it sometimes can be really, really tricky. You know, we haven't had alcohol for several months. We actually had a couple of drinks last week after we had the kitchen emptied and I was not happy at all. I, I was worried that having a couple of drinks would make me want them every night again. And it was completely the opposite. I didn't enjoy them as much when I was drinking as I thought I would. And I felt like crap in the morning. I didn't drink enough to be hungover, but I did not feel good. I did not like it at all. If anything, I'm further into my resolve now about maintaining sobriety. Kenny is not. This is the Harvest Weekend. As I'm recording this, he's playing in a golf tournament called The Harvest, and it's a big party. And I always have anxiety around this day because I never know how he'll come home, what state he'll be in. But Thursday night, he went to a dinner and he came home clearly inebriated, had had oh, only two drinks, but he was pretty sloppy, which was fine. That's fine. You know, he was out settling. I, it's, I'm not his mom. But last night when I was driving home from Amesbury, he called to say, hey, do you want to be naughty and have some drinks? I'm like, Kenny, where's your head right now? You're going to drink tomorrow. That means three days in a row you would have alcohol. And here's the difference with me and Kenny in that generativity versus stagnation. He knows that he feels better when he doesn't drink, but it's not enough to make him really decide to really want to quit. He doesn't drink because I don't drink. If I decided to drink every day, he would jump right in. This isn't a value judgment, but it is a mindset. And he misses it. And having drinks just reminded him how much he missed it. Having drinks reminded me how much I didn't. So this is the, the phase I'm in right now. Generativity versus stagnation. Rusty and Cheryl both died at 65. So they were just finishing middle age, middle age, and we're going into late adulthood or older adulthood, right? They missed out on an entire stage. Now, granted, they made it through seven of the eight stages. So that's longer than Molly made it. Molly was still in identity versus confusion, just figuring out who she was and how she wanted to fit into the world. Stage eight is integrity versus despair. And this is when you step back and look at your life. And did you live a life of integrity or do you feel badly for all the things that you didn't do? And I believe that both of these things are true for everybody. I think every one of these battles, so to speak, these conflicts, we all have both sides in us. It's the beauty of Erickson's stages is it really does take into account all the things that we juggle and battle and go back and forth in our minds with. And depending on what happens to us, so much of where we end up is because of what happens to us. So Linda, my friend Linda, who just died, was also in her 60s. So again, never getting a chance to really grow old, old, never getting a chance to be elderly. Linda had cancer for a long time, a variety of different kinds of cancers. And what she did with her cancer was retire from teaching and she became an artist. She painted and took pictures and sketched. She traveled all over the world, so sick and traveled anyway, and just, just decided to see as much as she could. She recently went to New Zealand, not that long ago. I knew that her death was coming. I was surprised to hear that it was today. Annika, Annika is in the middle of her, of her young adult life. She's in stage six, 18 to 40, intimacy versus isolation. I don't know any details around her death, but I do know that she, she doesn't get to finish that stage or enter the next two. So in my blog post about Rusty's death, I contemplated a lot where he was and where I was. And the last two or three years of his life, his brain tumor and several strokes left him really like a child, like a little boy. And so I look at the conflicts that we have, generativity versus stagnation, integrity versus despair. 
And I think, what would a, what would a seven-year-old boy think about these things? You know, maybe what was going on in his, in his head was still age-appropriate, but what he could articulate was like a child. When when Cheryl died, they weren't sure if he really comprehended it, but he would say, "Miss Cheryl, he missed her." Maybe that was the best way he could say, "Look, I'm stuck in here, and I know exactly what happened, and I really miss Cheryl." All of this gets me thinking about my own life. And at age 60, more and more people that I know <laughs> are dying. Some of them much younger than me, many of them my age. Jack loves to watch Concord Dance Academy dance recital DVDs. And so we have, of course, like 20 of them. And so we started watching the 2009 recital. And in that recital is Diane Peterson, who's no longer alive. The man that recorded that recital, John Graffair, is no longer alive. Several women in my dance, in the adult tap dance, are no longer alive. It's really hard to watch these things. Six-year-old Molly is no longer alive. And you watch it. And I remember watching Gracie watch. And together we counted the people that were no longer with us. And it was eye-opening for me to see her sort of calibrate this realization in her mind. It's cloudy. It's November. I'm saying goodbye to my kitchen. I have all of these grief processes going on in my life right now. And there's a part of me that, A, really would like to have a drink, <laughs> which I'm not going to do. And B, really wants to sit with and just process and think about. And so as I was wrapping up China out of our hutch in the kitchen this morning and listening to the Indigo Girls, finding meaning came in my head. And I'm like, finding meaning? Why did that come into my head? Like, it really just came into my head like a voice. And so then I couldn't remember. I was telling Gracie, you know, chit-chatting with her about everything that was going on in my mind and how I felt. And then it came back into my head, finding meaning. And she looked at me like, what? I said, it's the name of a book. It keeps coming into my head. I don't, I don't remember who wrote it. I don't remember what it's about. I don't remember any of it. I sat down to eat lunch and I'm sitting in our dining room, kitchen, living room, room. I'm looking at my phone. I'm reading my email. And I get an email from Jerry Frew, who's a wonderful former school district employee who lost his son, Ryan. Ryan was a well-known man in our community in his 40s, a sudden death. And of course, child loss is decimating. And, and so I've begun sort of a email online relationship with he and his wife. They're only three years in and three years is nothing. It's really nothing. I think back to three years for us. And that was the year Rachel died. That was my, you know, brain tumor year. We were still so actively not okay. We hadn't even cleaned out the room. That's now our kitchen, the dining room, playroom area was still full of hospital stuff at that time. One of the things I did recovering from my brain tumor was clean out all the bags from the hospital room with Molly. Three years, they sat there where we put them. I read an email from the Frews and it just talked about my book. So Motherland was released on October 24th. And as of today, which is November 4th, I have had probably 10 people reach out to me to say they'd finished the book or that they're in the process of reading it. Everybody. And now most of the people that have, that have reached out have not lost a child, but everyone was able to find something in that book that resonated with them on a really powerful level. And I'll get teary-eyed, I think, because so much my motivation for the book was to help people share the ugly, ugly truth of me around Molly's death, around my relationships at the time, around having Jack, so that people see that sometimes the facade we put on is just that. It's a facade. Artificial intelligence is one of my favorite new buzzwords because artificial is the key word there. Yeah, it's intelligence, but it's artificial. It's not coming from inside your head. It's coming from inside a computer. Granted, somebody's brain developed it, but still this artificial sense of strength and calm and acceptance and healing. 
I realized that by writing the book, it gives people permission to be okay with themselves around their own grief. It's been incredibly, incredibly gratifying. The hard part for me is asking people to leave reviews on Amazon or Goodreads. Online reviews drive sales of things like books. When people type in a search, it will come up quicker. The more reviews a book gets, the algorithm changes. I don't understand all this, but. And so I've, I've been able to ask a few people and the reviews are, nah, they kind of take my breath away. They make me really sad in a happy way. That sounded horrible. They're heart-wrenching because people are sharing and I realize how painful it is for people to read it. One of Molly's seventh grade teachers came to the book signing and she wrote to me today to say that she's reading it slowly for two reasons. A, to spend more time with Molly and B, to, because it's so emotionally dense that it's all she can manage and she's cried three times. My auntie Sheila just wrote to tell me that her husband, Mike, has cried. The book made him cry. So Do I want to make people cry? I think so, because if you have tears inside of your heart that need to come out, then that release is a really healthy thing. And more and more people get to know Molly. So this has been a really solid part of this process for me. What does this have to do with Rusty's death and all these deaths and and how I'm feeling as we go into November and the death of my old kitchen, which will rebirth into a new beautiful kitchen? You know, all of these things are connected. So finding meaning kept coming into my head. So I dug it out and you know what? Finding Meaning is a book written by David Kessler. So I'm a certified grief coach. I took his class. I took it twice, actually. I learned so much. So much I already knew, which I think is the essence of grief because we're experiencing things we can't explain. And then we learn what we're experiencing or somebody puts words to it. We can say, yes, of course, that's what that is. So I learned a lot that I didn't know. And we all experience grief incredibly differently. I'm very open and public about my grief. I find comfort in sharing. There are those that just want to be left alone. I would love for everyone to be able to share their grief, but if that isn't what makes you feel better, then don't. Because we need all manner of people in any given entity to exist. There was a post on Facebook today around local elections. And a woman was complaining that she didn't like the fact that longtime citizens should be elected to these positions and that that new citizens, people that chose to move here, didn't have equal voice. And I get it. You know, here's two sides. Here's another good Eric Erickson conflict here, right? Lifetime residents of a town versus people that move there as young adults or adults or older adults. Any table around which sits a group of people making decisions for the greater good of a community needs to have both. There need to be old timers. They have the perspective. They can give answers to questions that new people might not know. Having said that, you can't go back in time. I wouldn't want to recreate Concord of 1970. Too many people weren't okay in 1970. 2020 isn't easier or better. Well, you know what? 2023 isn't easier, but I think it's better. And it's better because there's much more voice and opportunity and chance for people who are struggling to receive support. So we need old timers and we need new people who come with fresh ideas and visions. A political campaign was like, let's return Concord to how it used to be. No, thanks. Of course we want, we would like lower crime and less traffic and safer neighborhoods, but My goodness, young, new, fresh faces can achieve those things as well. So all of this has been streaming into my head, right? So finding meaning, I found it. The basic gist of finding meaning is that grief has six stages, not just five. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a book, The Five Stages of Grief, which people have assigned to death. And it's actually your own death. She didn't write that to deal with the death of someone else. It It was knowing that you were going to die, you know? And so there were five stages. There, There was denial anger, depression, 
bargaining and acceptance. And they, they go all around in order, right? And this was around your death. You find out you're going to die. No, that can't be true. That's not true. I don't believe it. And then you get depressed. Oh my God, I'm so sad. This is terrible. I don't want to die. And then bargaining. Okay, God, I'll clean my room every day. I'll keep my room clean forever if you just let me live. And then anger. Well, this isn't fair. What the hell? I've lived a good life. Why do I have to get sick? And then finally acceptance. Okay, I get it. There's nothing I can do about this except deal with it and accept it and I'll be okay. There we go. But there's a sixth stage of grief. And while I don't have a single word for it, because I need to reread the book, the essence of it is that the sixth stage of grief is finding meaning. Everything has meaning. Doesn't mean it's okay that it happened, but nothing, nothing happens just randomly. And one of the first sentences in my book, in the prologue to my book, is about that, that we assign meaning to things and that we somehow think everything happens for a reason. And sometimes things just happen and we think things about them that aren't true at all. So finding meaning, is there meaning in Molly's death? I know that part of my podcast and part of my blog and part of writing this book was to help me find meaning in it. It's the sixth stage of grief. It's finding meaning. And it talks about all the things that we do in the grief process. So how I deal with Rusty's death, how I dealt with Jean Connolly's death, how I'm dealing with Linda May's death, finding out that a classmate of mine passed away, how I'm dealing with that, how I'm dealing with a former student now who's passed away and she's young and probably has younger children. All of these deaths play a role in my grief journey and how I respond is a direct result of where I am in my grief journey. And I imagine it's that way for you as well. So in true Barb fashion, I just opened up the book to a page and thought, I'll see what's on this page. And actually the part of the page that I opened up to is called Don't Forget the Middle. And it goes back to what I said in the beginning of this episode, that we go to a wake and we're sad, but what we do is we stand around and we talk about what we loved about that person. We talk about memories and experiences. So in this chapter, a boy named Michael is angry that his dad died. And all he's stuck in is how horrible his death was, how frail he was, how bad his last days were. And his uncle, after another Thanksgiving together, and Michael just bemoaning the fact that his dad was so sick, his uncle says, come on, I want to take you for a walk. So they go for a walk. Uncle Ralph stopped and began scrolling through something on his phone. What's happening, Mike asked. Hang on, Ralph said. There's something I want you to hear. Mike stood there, not sure what his uncle was looking for. Here it is, Ralph said after a minute or two. And then he played a voice message he had saved from Mike's dad. Hey, Ralph, thanks for coming in for my birthday yesterday. It meant a lot. Mike leaned into the phone as if to get closer to his dad. The message continued. I had the best time playing football with you, Mike and the neighbors. Mike and I are about to go on a hike. I couldn't think of a better way to spend my birthday. Thanks again. Mike paused to take it in and said, Wow, I forgot about that day. I could see that you did. That's why I played this. The end of your dad's life was horrible. We'll never forget that. I don't want you to forget the middle. He was a strong, happy man for most of his life. He had a lot of wonderful days. You need to remember those days too. It is no surprise that I found this page at all. The universe does what it does. In the years, the days, weeks, months, and years right after Molly died, all I could think about was every mistake I'd made, every place I'd been that I shouldn't have been, every person I was with that I shouldn't have been with. That's how I felt at the time. All I could do was look at every mistake, every wrong choice, every left turn that should have been a right turn, 
every moment of her suffering, I, I was just lost in it and caught up in it like a whirlpool going down a drain. And there's not much you can do in that except cut the current, right? Let the current take you and swim across. But that isn't what we do when we're in a whirlpool. We panic and we fight the current. And so we make little headway. We really struggle. I was forgetting the middle. In my conversation with Nicole about the two kinds of death, you're alive and then you're dead. You find out you're sick. You're alive, you're sick, you're alive, you're sick, you're alive, you're sick, you're dying, you're dead. Which one's better? Well, neither one is better. They're just different. And they each have qualities that make them preferable to the other. And they each have qualities that make them not preferable to the other. They're just different. I had no time to prepare for dead Molly. And I was thrust into the reality that she was never coming back, not having had any time to prepare for this. Child loss in this regard is different. Even though my mother isn't sick, she's 81. So I'm constantly preparing myself for her death because it's eminent, meaning in the next 10 or 20 years. So not that eminent, but much sooner than I would have thought Molly's death would have been. I did nothing to prepare for Molly dying. That wasn't what was supposed to be happening. Kenny was sick. We all prepared for his death. Kenny is still very much alive. Molly is still very much dead. And so the middle, it took me three or four years to get to the point where remembering the happy parts of Molly didn't feel like I was failing her, didn't feel like I was deserting her, didn't feel like I was forgetting her. It was really difficult for me. And I'll, and I'll say, I, I love remembering the good parts of Molly. They still mostly just hurt me and make my tummy knot up and make me angry because she's not here. I have to tell the same stories over and over again forever. And I know what that looks like to other people. I have enough angel mom friends that I've seen the pictures. I've seen the same pictures year after year of these children that I only know because they're in heaven. And I know that those moms look at the pictures I post of Molly and those are the same. I look at Marilee's pictures a lot and her mom, Lisa, anytime there's a picture I haven't seen before, I go nuts because it's just another glimpse of Marilee. I get to see her in a different light. I, I see a different version of her and it's a beautiful thing. And it's all processing the middle, right? One of the nice parts of this kind of experience, a wake or a funeral or a celebration of life is that we process what we loved the most about the person. And that was the beauty of Molly's musical is it was two hours where we could all just celebrate what we loved about Molly and reflect on everything that made us love her and what would, that would make us miss her. It's the easiest thing to forget. It's so easy to get stuck on the parts that hurt us the most. And I still spend a lot of time, a lot of time processing my role in her death. So in my current reality with these, you know, a coaching friend dies, a teaching friend dies, a classmate from high school dies, a former student dies. I'm going around and around with all of this right now. And it's exhausting, quite honestly. And in the meantime, several things in my life are undergoing drastic physical change. My kitchen, which I've talked a ton about, cutting the tree down in my yard, the front yard, if I'm looking to the left, because that's where the windows are, I have a beautiful stone wall that quite honestly looks like it's always been there. Once the grass is planted and, and it's landscaped in the spring, people will drive by and not know that it was brand new. And that's wonderful, but it's different. It's nothing like it was before. And this is an incredible part of the grief journey, except it isn't around people. It's around a place, a place that the person was. In 2019, right after Coach Ludi died, I panicked. And so in 2020, I bought his house. And the main reason I bought it is I wasn't ready to let him go. And I had only happy memories in that house. Both Mr. and Mrs. Ludi were unbelievably supportive of me. They were supportive in my struggles in high school. They were supportive in, in my accolades in college and then my returning struggles in, in my adult life. When I got married and had Gracie and Kenny, they were so excited for me. 
when I lost my job, oh, I thought Mrs. Ludi was going to beat someone up for me. She let me know what she thought of Chris Rath and that whole crew and, and the whole thing. And, and, you know, they were very, very, Coach Ludi was a very staunch Catholic and churchgoer. And it's not that he was judgmental, but he wasn't easy on people that he thought made mistakes. And they were unbelievably forgiving and kind to me. They knew that my gullibility would lead me into things that weren't very good for me. And they never once gave me judgment. And so when I bought his house, it was a way of me to hold on to him. And I'm so glad I did. Making changes to it has been difficult, but it's actually been terrific practice for my kitchen remodel and my yard landscaping. So at Coach's house right now, we're redoing the hallway. All that plaster was falling off the wall. So it's all coming down and sheetrock is going up and it'll be repainted. It's it's just going to be beautiful. All of it's going to just look lovely. New carpet for the stairs, a new a repaired ceiling above the closet, all of it. It's just going to look wonderful, which it deserves. And then with the exception of the kitchen and the bathroom, that house will just be lipstick and rouged to death, right? At the same time, we're trimming some trees in Coach's yard. So Kenny and I dug up his whole garden. That was really emotional. Every moment I spent there, all I could see was Coach in the garden, picking tomatoes and picking weeds. He tended that garden all for hours, all summer long. I thought of sitting in the yard and, and having, you know, artichoke leaves where you, where you peel the, the leaf through your teeth and eat the covering of the, of the leaf. And then you eat the heart of the artichoke. That was one of his favorite yard snacks. I don't know. I remember those times and a small glass of wine to go with it. When he gave me a hand carved wooden duck in his yard, I'll never forget that day. My heart was pounding. So I have all these memories that go through my mind as I, as I dig up a garden that he planted, right? There are these two beautiful trees and I brought Rocky over because Rocky is this tender human being that sees the world bigger than him and his tree cutting stuff. And I said, if anyone can repair this tree, it's you. Can we save it? It's a huge tree. When he got up there in the bucket, he realized that Coach Ludi years ago had already cabled the tree in two places to keep it from falling, to keep branches from falling because of their weight. So he trimmed and trimmed yesterday. He limbed. In his estimation, he took down 3,500 pounds, 3,500 pounds, almost two tons of tree branches out of that tree. And he didn't have to cable it. He thought he was going to need to cable it. And when he got up there, there was a cable up there that you could hardly see from the ground. So I sent video clips to Angela and Bobby, Coach's kids, of this process. And both of them wrote back, oh my gosh, I remember that tree was just a sapling when we moved in. They both almost said the exact same thing. And they talked about all the time they spent underneath it. Picnics, playing in the yard, hammocks, you know, cookouts, all the things you do under a tree in your yard. And I realized that that tree was a giving tree as well. There's still a hook in it where coach hung his hammock from the tree to a post. Anyway, all of this is going on right now at the same time. So finding meaning, remembering the middle. I am right smack dab in the middle of so many things right now. Listening to people's responses to the book, looking at my house and its transformation, watching Jack and Gracie process all of this and just experiencing the beauty of these things for the people who are facilitating these changes. I am incredibly lucky right now. Eric, my builder from a company called Nest, Taylor, my designer, who's in charge of this whole beautiful kitchen remodel, Tom, my landscaper who built the yard, who is the former husband of my best friend, Pammy, my gym bestie, Rocky, who is a Concord native from way back, who understands the big picture around trees and the beauty and their meaning in life, who understands sickness and death and love, who gave me a big hug yesterday when he saw me. And then Rob, who's doing the work at Coach's House, who's a good friend of Deb's, who also understands that it's just, it's a much bigger job than just a wall. 
it's the essence of a home that saw a lot of love. So I'm sound all hokey here, but this is where I'm at right now. And I'm doing a really good job not crying. <laughs> so that's a lot. That's a lot of emotion. But I love that I can look back on intellectual people. I love that David Kessler and Eric Erickson can give me references and, and frameworks for all that's going through my head. It gives it validity. I don't feel like such a crazy woman, <laughs> although I am. Actually, I was at the gym the other day. This was great. I was coaching yesterday at 5.30 in the morning, 6.30, and Eric came in and he said, men are stupid and women are crazy. And I'm like, well, that's probably a generalization. He goes, no, 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 think about it. We're stupid enough to stay with crazy women. Women are crazy enough to stay with stupid guys. And I realized he's absolutely right. <laughs> and I suppose it doesn't have to just be men and women, but in general, you've got stupid and you've got crazy. And if you're both crazy or you're both stupid, it's not going to work. One of you has to be one and one, has to, one of you has to be the other. So that's my little feeble attempt at humor to wrap up all that's going on in my mind. But I really, I am really truly just overwhelmed right now. And I'm able to do this without getting drunk or high or hating myself or some sort of self-sabotage. I'm able to just be with it. And it wasn't that long ago that I couldn't imagine not having drinks at the end of the day. It's the only way I got to five o'clock, knowing that at five o'clock I could stop. So it's the beginning of November as I record this. It'll be right smack in the middle of November when you hear it. Some things coming up will be, I'm going to be on a podcast called More Milk, Please by a former student, Molly Ryder. I'll let you know when that interview will air. But that's a podcast she's doing around breastfeeding and motherhood and such. I'm meeting with Lita Peterson, the CrossFit lady. So she does a podcast called the CrossFit Lady Podcast. And we're going to interview one another and be on each other's podcast. So that's exciting. And again, that will be a lot of CrossFit conversation, but also just menopause and what it's like to be a female vagina-bodied person in your 50s and 60s and how that affects performance and athleticism and working out and all that kind of stuff. And then I also am contemplating some other guests. I would love to get on some author podcasts and other trauma podcasts right now, actually. Well, right now, meaning early November, but it will still be easy to get. I'm on an IVF over 40 podcast. It's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. I'll put a link in my bio for you. So these are things that I'm trying to do to step out of my comfort zone as a podcaster and really take on topics at a deeper level and, you know, stretch myself and stay interesting, right? And relevant. So be good to yourself. Always be good to yourself. I'm being good to myself by abstaining from alcohol and maintaining my newly found, perfectly fine eating habits. Yay. Be good to someone else. Comfort them. If you don't know what to say, simply say, I don't know what to say. That's better than saying something they're supposed to do. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.